You're recording. So we all sit together. Yes. At 11. All right. So we are talking tonight about the four last things. But before we do, let's talk about where we've been. We started our whole course talking about the nature of God and the nature of man. What did we say human beings were? We said they were rational animals. We're animals. We have a physical side. We're rational. We have a deeply moral and an intellectual side. And it follows from that that in order to be fulfilled, we have to not only fulfill our animal side, physical health, exercise, the enjoyment of the body, but we have to fulfill our moral and our intellectual side. And so we require these proper habits of life, intellectual habits like wisdom, moral habits like justice, moderation, and courage. But then we saw the problem of sin. There's a distortion inside of us so that we don't desire what we ought to, right? It would be great if we found ourselves only desiring the amount of chocolate cake that was reasonable, only desiring the amount of alcohol that we could actually handle. But we think another drink wouldn't hurt, right? Three slices extra of chocolate cake. Why could that go wrong? And we ask ourselves, why is this distortion? And we find out from the church that there's this doctrine of the fall of man. There's a distortion built into our appetites. So our desires simply don't automatically desire what's good for us. We don't find it to be a 50-50 toss-up. What we find is a pervasive aiming away from what's good so that what's beautiful doesn't appear beautiful. What's ugly appears desirable. And as a result, we find ourselves succumbing to this, what the church calls the sin. Not only it turns out in our bodies, but from an attack from an enemy of the demonic temptation, from our friends and neighbors, a, a disordered world, from the nature of suffering, and ultimately from death. There's a big problem within our experience. And so when we fully understand that the good isn't just a concept, but it's actually God's nature, and we saw how God exists, and therefore he's the supreme good, it follows that we need something to come into the system and say, we need to write this. We need to fix this appetitive disorder. We need to defeat sin in the world. We need to conquer death. We need to forgive sins. We need to make a path for human beings to finally get to their true good, which of course is God. That is not something that human beings are going to be able to pull off. Ultimately, because God is an infinite being, there's nothing finite creatures of any capacity, whether innocent, whether good, even if we were angelic. We need God to be able to make possible a path to himself. But because of our sin and our fall of our race, it's doubly, triply problematic. But of course, God is love. God has always been love. He's a community of loving persons. And so he sent his son in an incarnate form to make possible that path to himself, to reorder not just human nature, to bring us to our fruition, but to reorder the animals, to reorder the plants, to reorder the rocks, to reorder the entire universe. Back earlier, you might remember, we talked about Romans 8. The entire creation suffers, groans in this longing for a redemption that requires us, its kings, to be properly fulfilled. And so there's been this impetus to let's somehow get this right. Let's fix this. And the incarnation is the first steps. Look how Jesus demonstrated the fixing. He heals the blind, right? The people that can't walk, he gives them the ability to walk. The dead he raises. The hungry he feeds. The prisoners he releases. He forgives the crimes. The woman caught in adultery, he forgives her. The paralytic with his sins, he forgives him. St. Peter denies Christ three times. A chosen apostle. And what does Jesus do? Simon Peter, do you love me? 
Peter, do you love me? Peter, are we friends? And he's the first pope and he's restored. Does Jesus forgive? Yes, he teaches us the lessons of forgiveness. But not just of human beings. He changes nature, right? He restores it. He says to the seas, peace, be still. And they instantly obey. This is a God who is interested in the redemption of the totality of the cosmos, the entire world. Did they lock you out? Good God. (laughs) I'm going to just keep going and I'll let you deal with that, Mom. And so incarnation leads to redemption, a redemption not only of the human nature, not only of human beings, but a redemption of the world. But that is a long process. And tonight what we want to do is talk about its completion. How is it inaugurated with us? Jesus institutes three theological virtues, which take the old virtues of wisdom, moderation, courage, and justice, and gives them a new theological injection, something that God adds to wisdom. What is that thing that he adds to wisdom to help us get to the truth? Faith. Something that adds to the appetites, to the virtues of courage and moderation. What is that theological virtue? Hope. An inspiration that moves us to something better, that causes us never to give up because we never forget about what God ultimately has offered. And finally, something that takes justice and tells us what it was really ultimately about. Not just negative, right? Not just retributive justice, people getting what they deserve. I mean, that's important. But what's better than someone getting what they deserve? Being transformed to come to you and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And then say, I'm going to do it right now, right? I mean, that's the best thing, reconciliation. How does that happen? Love. And so we have finally the theological virtue of love, a transformative set of virtues that bring human beings not just to God, not just to the reconciliation with God, because you need faith, hope, and love for the reconciliation of people, right? You need both. And so the greatest two commandments, that we love God with all of ourselves and we love our neighbor as ourselves, are fulfilled through these virtues. How do we get these virtues? Well, they're injected into us at our baptisms. They're sealed and made um, effective through confirmation, through the Holy Spirit's administration and the graces that you will receive through the holy oils. You're so close. So exciting. I'm so excited. And then they are maintained and fed by these amazing sacraments of the Holy Eucharist, through the sacraments of marriage and holy orders, and ultimately through, on a, on a weekly basis or monthly, however it works, through the sacraments of confirmation, and then, of course, uh, uh, reconciliation and confession, and then ultimately, at the very end, through the healing graces and the last rites. And then as you walk in a life of grace and love, And how was this all supposed to be enacted? Jesus did not give us a book as we talked about. He gave us people. He gave us the church. God is a community of persons. So is it any wonder that he began human nature as a community of persons? That he created not just a man but a woman and said, you two together are human nature. Your instantiation and your fruitfulness in having children and creating this community of love. Is it a wonder that he then instituted the state which wasn't supposed to be a coercive agency that just presses down on people. But when you're struggling and you're stressed out and things are going wrong, bands together and says, let's find a way to solve this problem, right? That's our ideal of a state. Hopefully what we're seeing now is we're dealing with this virus. 
the state is supposed to be helping. Our governor is saying, let's figure out a way to help slow this thing down, wait for that vaccination, let's band together, close this down, work together. That's the ideal of the state, not petty politics, but the real seeking of the good as a communal order. Again, a group of persons in a community of love seeking the good, yeah? And then the ultimate instantiation of this thing, you take all these families and you take the state, and then God gives on Pentecost something truly wondrous. The first absolutely, totally transnational organization in human history, and the only one that has never failed, never gone away. And what is that? The church. And this is the means by which Christ intends to inject his love into the world. He calls us his feet. He calls us his fingers his lungs, his mouth. We are the body of Christ. We are the instantiation of this love. And he gave the church a twin order, baptize and teach. Baptism is the first of the sacraments. So the first mission of the church is to instantiate the sacraments. Not just baptism, but Eucharist. Not just Eucharist, but confirmation and all the other ones. And then to teach, to teach all the things that Jesus taught. How do we live these kinds of lives? What we're doing here in RCIA. And what ultimately you'll continue to do as you learn the faith and then as you then become the people that inspire others to be drawn to the faith. Just as you have been inspired by fellow Catholics, every single one of you on day one said, it was another Catholic. That's what drew me to the faith. Of course. And you will become the same kind of fruit bearers drawing others to the same faith. So what is the church? Well, that's what we want to talk about tonight. What is this communion of persons? Well, we have a doctrine, which we're going to talk about finally, called the Communion of Saints. This is one of the oldest doctrines in the church found in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the Communion of Saints. And so we need to talk about what this is. So let's have a little peek. Go to Hebrews. since you may not have completely learned all your books in order yet. New Testament, page 191 in the New Testament. Intriguingly, it's after the Great Faith chapter, chapter 11. If you've never read the book of Hebrews, it's quite a read. But Hebrews 11 and 12 are truly astounding. So, uh, uh, <coughs> is Hebrews 11? Oh, it is. Hebrews 11 is a great chapter of faith. You're going to go with me now to Hebrews 12. After this litany of people, Abraham, Enoch, Moses, all these tremendous exemplars of faith, we then get to chapter 12. And just to set us up, let's go back and see these great people. Look at line 32. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell, verse 11, page 190, of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, received promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refused to accept release that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and scourging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering over deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though well attested by their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had foreseen something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. 
The Jews were never to be made perfect in themselves. It had to be a human solution. And Jews are not the entirety of human nature. Right? It had to involve the Gentiles, the Greeks. That's us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now notice this. The witnesses are all these people that are dead. They're dead. But according to line one of chapter 12, they aren't dead, are they? We know they're dead because they died. But they are even now witnesses, which means they are alive. Our great doctrine of the resurrection, right? But they haven't been resurrected yet, and yet they're still alive. So where are they? On the other side, with God in heaven. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. So like these others who pushed aside all darkness and sin in order to keep their mind focused on the light, we should be inspired by their example, but not just by their example, by their living reality. Even now, who are witnesses not just of what went before, but of what is happening right now, and let us run with perseverance. There's the great virtue of endurance, of fortitude, of not giving up. Run with the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider whom him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Right? So if you ever feel like, oh, I'm just, I can't take it anymore. I just want to give up. Then go back and remember. Remember Moses. Remember Joseph. Remember Daniel. Remember all these great heroes. Remember the people who shed their own blood. And when you're tired and you're despondent and you're frustrated with sin and its evil, not just necessarily in your own self, maybe you're talking about the sin that you've seen destroying the people around you. When you start to feel despondent, like, I just, it's not worth it. Oh, oh, it's worth it. Right? It's worth it. Why? Because of the author and finisher of our faith, the perfecter, the completer, and the great cloud of witnesses who are watching. Even now. So think what the writer is saying. It's not just Jesus in heaven at the right hand of God that's watching. It's Joseph. It's Deborah. It's Sarah. It's Abraham. It's all these people, the saints. So we do not believe that when someone dies in faith, that they are dead and gone. Those who have loved God are with God and they are alive. And notice they are aware. They are living witnesses so we have a communion of saints, which implies three states or activities. We talk about the communion as the church, militant, the church, penitent, and the church, triumphant. Who are these great cloud of witnesses? Jewish triumphant. 
They are the ones who are already with God. Let me ask you something. Let's suppose you love God just so deeply and you love your neighbor as yourself because if you love God, how can you possibly hate the people that God loves, right? You pass through death. You get to the other side. There's God and you're so pleased, so happy to see him. And you're aware of what's happening to your friends, your relatives, your neighbors back on earth. And you see the struggles that they're going through. Let me ask you, do you think you stop caring about them? Do you think you don't love them anymore? If you had a few five minutes private time with God, and you were aware of what your daughter was going through, or what your uncle was going through, or what your husband was going through, in those five minutes, what would you think you would do? Would you not say, by the way, I just wish to point out. You do that now, don't you? Do you think sainthood is less of the virtue of what you're doing right now? It can't be a lack of concern. It can't be a lack of knowledge because we just found out they're aware, they're watching, right? They're witnesses. And it's not like God doesn't care. So what do you think the saints are doing? They're triumphant. They have defeated death. They're past it. They're past the struggle of this life. And yet, <laughs> they're not past it. They're not past it. Because you aren't past it. And so, they aren't in it. And to be in it, we have a word for that, which starts with in, called intercession. They are advocates. I love that word. They are advocates. They are saying, God, please notice these problems. Please take care of these people. And so we have a notion that there are all these people who are seeing God. That's the definition of a saint. These people that have already gone before us who are with God and they are loving God and they are reunited with their friends and their family. But in no sense does that mean that they are cut off from us. They are in a co Union, that's what communion means, a communion, a co-unity. We are one living church. Not a single member of the church is gone. And so, just as when we struggle in this life, you say, well, Betsy, please pray for me. I am struggling right now. Having a terribly difficult time, please pray for me. Would that be unreasonable? You think, look at Betsy. Does she strike you as the kind of person you said, please pray for me, she would do that? And Betsy, would you not call out to someone else, say, Aaron, please pray for me about a problem? Absolutely. Don't we care about each other enough to do that? And would you say, no, I'm sorry, I won't pray for you. <laughs> You're like, Wh why would I do that? Right? No, we would say, no, there's only one mediator. No, we would never say that. We would never say that. So if our friends in heaven, 
are watching and aware, as Hebrews 12 in the Bible makes very clear, let me ask you something. Why would we not ask them to pray for us? What else do they have to do? <laughs> You're not bothering them, right? We are a communion. You understand the idea? So we ask the saints, we say, please pray to God for us. Look, we know the Son in intercedes on our behalf, right? Does not St. John say the Son is an intercessor for us? We know the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with the Father with groans that cannot even be uttered. This deep, divine connection to the Father. We know that the Blessed Virgin cares for the church. It's her son's future bride. So why wouldn't we ask her to pray for us? Why wouldn't you ask your heroes of the faith? Daniel, Deborah, Matthew, Andrew, St. Anne. Why wouldn't you ask them? Look, you've got to understand what Catholicism means. It means you're never alone. I mean, that's what we're trying to tell you. You're never alone. It's never me and God. God never created a me and God situation because God himself is a community of persons. It's always you and the Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father. And your guardian angel, by the way. And the archangels and the virtues and the cherubim and the seraphim. It's never you and God. And it follows from that. It's also never you and God apart from Daniel and David and Abraham, right? They are like us. They went through it. They understand. And so we are a communion, a living reality. Right now in this room, we told you when we talked about angels, there is an angel for every one of you, literally right here, right now. Count the number, there's that many angels. And you know what else? There's that many saints caring about you. Because the church teaches that every single one of us have a patron saint. Somebody who even now is praying for you. And you get to pick them. Although kind of technically they've kind of picked you. But you don't know that yet because we're just telling you about this. So I have a patron saint. And his name is St. Justin Martyr. Who was St. Justin Martyr? Well, in the second century, he was one of the bishops. And he was the first Christian philosopher, officially. Technically, St. Paul was the first Christian philosopher. He deserves the credit, but Justin Martyr is pretty good. So he's the first. And you say, why would you pick a philosopher? As oh, yeah, you're a philosopher. <laughs> yeah. Think about the people in the faith that have inspired you. Think about the people that you want to emulate. And if you're a female, you can have a female saint or a male saint. If you're a male, you can have a male saint or a female saint. That has nothing to do with it. It's a question of inspiration and emulation. And so when I came into the Orthodox Church, which is, of course, the eastern side of the Roman Catholic Church, right? There's a few little distortions that have to be worked out, but they're minor. I got a new name. I was no longer merely Jeffrey Teal. I was now Jeffrey Justin, and you get a new name too, your saint name, your Christian name. And so one of the things we're going to ask you to do starting today is to start thinking prior to Easter, when you come into the church and receive all these blessed sacraments, who do you want to be your patron saint? Who inspires you? Who moves you? 
Who causes you to say, these are my exemplars? Pick one specific person that you think most does that for you. And if you say, well, I have no idea. I know nothing about the history of the church. Then get to work. <laughs> Start finding out. And pick your saint. And the truth is, that person has already been praying for you. That person has already been a witness to your slow transformation here. All the steps that help bring you to the faith. That person has been praying for you the entire time. Helping move the little widgets, right? To help to bring you closer and closer and closer to the love of God. And so it's time for you to acknowledge that person who's been praying for you the entire time. That's going to become your patron saint. And then you will be named after that person. It's an extraordinary thing. So start working on that. Now you have some homework. And then, when you pray, you say your prayers. And when you say, I pray in the name of Jesus, and I ask the Holy Spirit, please intercede for me. And then I'm going to ask you to start doing something that's going to be easy as pie for many of you. And for some of you, it's going to be like, what? I'm going to ask you to start asking them to intercede for you. You say, that sounds like worship of the saints to me. Well, it's not worship, but it is prayer. To say, to pray intercessory, pray means what? It's nothing but please. Prayer does not imply worship. As we have told you from the beginning, the only people that we are allowed to worship is the Holy Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit, that's it. We worship nobody else. But we admire the saints. We seek their intercessor, intercessor reaction. And we have a word for that. And it's not worship, because we do not worship saints. Absolutely not. We venerate saints. That means we look up to them. That means we admire their example. That means we want them to pray for us. And down the generations from now, we want people to look up to us if we live the kinds of lives that are worthy and noble and say, be like that person. There's nothing wrong with that. That takes nothing from God. Because God never created a universe with just himself in it and you. Right? He created all these angels, millions of them, and he created all these saints, millions of them. And so he wants a community. From start to finish, God is about communities of love. And the biggest community he ever created was the church. And so we are a living body. Not just in time, not just in penitence, but in heaven and triumph. And so I'm going to ask you to start to figure out who your patron saint is. And who, if it's Daniel, you say, all right. You faced the mouth of the lions. You faced off King Nebuchadnezzar. You did not give up. I want to never give up. Please pray for me, Daniel. Or maybe it'll be Deborah. Deborah, you are an incredible woman. I want to be like you. Or maybe it's the St. Anne, mother of the Blessed Virgin. You're a mother. And you're like, you had quite a motherly job. Right? Or maybe it's a famous wife. Who knows? Could be all these different people. And I want you to start saying to that person, please pray for me. Go ahead. Is there a particular, for those of us that know nothing about this, yeah. particular resource? You know, there's a, 
Saints.com. Yes, there are Saints.com things all over. You'll find them. Just find a good Catholic one. Okay. And yeah, I should have that ready to hand, but I don't know. There's so many different Saint books. And Google Saints, Encyclopedia. Patron Saints, options for Patron Saints, and you'll find. But you come out of a deep Protestant tradition. You know your Bible thoroughly. So if you're already schooled on, okay, who are the great women and men in the Bible that I've admired? You don't have to pick somebody after first century. Yeah. You have 3,000 years before that. Go for that. Okay. But if you're like, no, I want to find out about church history, then go for that. Learn that. But there's people that have already inspired you. And so, you know, maybe one of those people in the market. But maybe you're saying, oh, I want to find out about these others and learn and grow and realize for 2,000 years, while we've been foolish Protestants, there's been an entire ocean of saints. Protestantism was never anything but a tiny little puddle. And the entire ocean of the church has been going on. And so you're like, I just found out, you know, what all these people. That's right. I felt the same way. I understand exactly that feeling. Time to big up, dive into the ocean, and start learning. And now you've got an idea right there. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I really appreciate your... Thank you, Lynn. I really appreciate um, um, your delineating between the concept of worship and prayer. Yeah. I mean, I was raised to see them interchange. I mean, they just didn't. Right. They were interchangeable. Protestants make them interchangeable so that they can condemn the Catholics. But unfortunately, there are Catholics who make them indistinguishable in their own practice. Yes. And this is a disgrace. No Catholic should ever be worshiping saints. But in certain areas in the world, you find people who are worshiping them like the ancient gods. They're, they're like little sects of people that worship particularly. There's a cult of Mary. Mary that, yeah. that yes. But we venerate Mary. We esteem her very highly. She would be appalled if anybody were to worship her. I, I think, at least for me, and I mean, I, I've known the difference, but just the example of I ask her to pray for me, so it's, you know, yes. that kind of clarifies it. Right, but Mary's status is a little more. That's part of the reason that Mary gets targeted by Protestants. Mary is Jesus' mother. She was the one who was gifted with this amazing grace by, well, by God, but announced by Gabriel. And Gabriel greets her with a greeting that is entirely out of keeping for a Jewish peasant. He is a royal greeting. She is no royal. She is a peasant. And yet, apparently, she's a royal. How? Because she's giving birth to the king of all kings. She is therefore queen mother. That's the reality. She's queen mother. And her status is therefore very high. And we need to recognize that. So the Blessed Virgin, we don't just call her Saint Mary. We call her the Blessed One because the angel called her blessed. And she has a very, very high standing within human nature. It doesn't mean we worship her. But we venerate Mary with the greatest possible esteem because she is truly the greatest human being that has ever lived. Keeping out, of course, the Incarnation, because there you have the perfection of human nature, the perfection of the divine in the Incarnation. Thus, Jesus is the epitome of what it means to be human as a man, and Mary is the epitome of what it means to be woman. And we therefore have the highest recognition for her. There's nothing wrong with you asking Mary to be your patron saint, by the way. Nothing whatsoever. Okay? But there's so many people that might inspire you, and I want you to think about that. Because we want you to understand that you are part of a community, a community of love that transcends death. Because when we pass through death, we are not dead. 
Okay, that's what you've got to understand. Death is something that happens for a brief second. That's it. That's all it lasts. And then psh, you're alive. So grasp that, what we are saying. You are alive with God. Now, you might say, I'm still developing moral virtue. There's a few rough edges. Chiseling some things off, trying to get things right. I know I'm, you know, you asked me on one of the first days, Jeff, you said, what are the three things that, you know, are most bothering you right now in your life? And instantly I thought of things like, that's not good. And Jeff, you said, start changing them. And I'm like, well, okay, you know, I'll try. It's hard. Right. And what if you die tonight? I mean, let's face it, you're on the right track, right? You're trying to come into the church, participate in the sacraments, start the life of charity, made a lot of progress so far. But I mean, honestly, are you there yet, right? I mean, Dr. Teal, Jeff Teal, are you there, right? I'm going too. So what happens if we die too early? What then? Well, let's have a peek. Let's again look at our texts. The New Testament is so helpful. Go to 1 Corinthians. First letter to Corinth, chapter 3. Go to verse 10. This is on page 139. Corinthians, the letters of Corinth, happen just after Romans, which happens after Acts, which happens after the four, four Gospels. What chapter, 1 Corinthians, chapter 3. Again, I want to emphasize to you that every one of these doctrines is found rooted in the Bible. This is not something the Catholics made up. <laughs> Okay. 1 Corinthians 3, chapter, verse, chapter 3, verses 10, starting there. Here we go. Is everyone there? Page 139, New Testament. According to the commission of God given to me, this is St. Paul, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and another man is building upon it. Let each man take care how he builds upon it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work which any man has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but as only through fire. Now, this is a kind of assessment, isn't it? a kind of judgment, a kind of evaluation. And we all know, as the ancient pagans even knew, that when we go through death, we face the divine assessment, the divine judgment. This has been clear to everyone from time immemorial. Each man will be judged according to his deeds, whether they are good or evil. Yeah? So this, we know this is not going to change. But here, we get a little bit more of the detail. And notice, it is a testing designed to purge the weaker elements. So, every man's work will be evaluated, will be tested by fire. What happens to gold, silver, and precious stones when you burn them? What happens to gold? It melts. It melts. And then what happens to it? 
Raise the heat. Well, no, it doesn't harden until you cool it down. We're still, we're still adding the fuel. It always stays gold, Stays gold, but what happens to the gold? Ah, it purifies, right? All the little impurities begin to right? And it becomes pure. Same thing with silver, yes? Now, let's suppose you mixed in some gold with, with some straw. Okay, we threw in your coins and we threw in some straw. How long is the straw going to last? Wood? Trash? Look into your life. Is there a little bit of wood here and there? Some straw? Some trash? Is there nevertheless some silver? Some gold? If you saw God right now, would you be pleased with that situation? Yes? Would you be displeased with that situation? Yes. That's normal. You want a situation where you love God so much, you love your neighbors so much, that when you see God, you're like, oh yeah. Of course. You don't want to be feeling a sense of some things are just not quite right. Too much straw. Too much wood. Right? You want a life that's completely consumed with love. Love for God, love for neighbor. We have that kind of love. There's no straw, there's no wood. But you might die before your time, right? You're not ready to see God. You're not here, really. But you have too much love in your life. You can't fit into hell, right? Hell is a very small place. It's only for the small souls. Right? Really small soul people who don't, don't care at all about anyone else. You say, well, I love people. I love God. I mean, I got some work to do. Right. So a place of total isolation from God's love because you have cut it off completely because you don't care a thing about God. You certainly don't care about your neighbor. That's not exactly going to work for you either, is it? But you're not here yet either. You understand the problem? So here's what the church has done. The church has taken this text and the church has taken this problem of us passing through death and not being completely ready, but on the right track, on the right direction, right? And it said, we need a way to talk about that. Let's give it a name. Is the name found in the Bible? No, it is not. Does it matter? No, it does not. Trinity is not in the Bible either. Do you believe in the Trinity? Of course. What is this called? Purgatory. Which is the church penitent. When you see God, do you think it's true that God is going to probably kind of expose the flaws in your life? Yes, probably. Should we work on that now? Yes. It's called Lent, right? Let's work on that now. But if, you know, in, the next, in two weeks from now that virus comes through and God forbid you die, well, I was trying to get to Easter, Lord. You think he doesn't understand that? Of course he understands that. God is not unfair. He's not looking for excuses to screw people over. Okay? No, 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 no. So you say, well, what's going to happen? But as we have seen, Negation isn't enough. 
to make things right, it's not enough that we stop doing wrong things, is it? What's the Pauline pattern? Let's suppose you're a thief. What does he tell us to do explicitly in Ephesians 5? Stop stealing. Okay, that's good. Get a job. Okay, take responsibility for myself. Give to those in need. Ah, uh, charity. Right? See the pattern? Stop doing the wrong thing. Address the problem that led you to do it. Take responsibility for yourself. In some cases, that means righting wrongs in the past, right? These things. And then focus on other people. Love others. That's the pattern of every single sin that you have. Stop doing the wrong thing. Fix it and make it right. And then start filling the void with love. So in purgatory, it cannot be any different from that. Purgatory cannot be anything but the completion of the virtues in our lives. So making right is the point. And how do we make right? We put on love. So purgatory is the completion of what was started. The growing of a seed that needs some more water, some more fuel. The only experiential evidence we have about this is the near-death experiences. I think we talked about this once before. Some people in the near-death experiences have what they call a life review, in which they experience their entire lives from the standpoint of their victims. Every single thing they did that was harmful to another person, they experience it from the standpoint of the person that they hurt. Do you think that would be an eye-opener? That's just step one. That's just realizing. Then you got to make it right. Right? And then we got to put on charity. So the near-death experiences, that pattern gives us a little bit of an insight as to what's the full picture. So purgatory is the church penitent. And us here in the battle, in the struggle, engaged with the enemy, in the church militant, I'll talk about that in a moment, why we call it the church militant, we pray not just for intercession from the church triumphant, we pray for the people here. They need our prayers. They are no different than you and me. So if you know someone who's died and they were on that path, you're like, oh, they're going to need some help. Is that arrogant for you to think that? No. No. Do you think you need some help? Would you like people to pray for you? Then maybe you should pray for them. It's not arrogant for you to pray for people saying, well, I'm just assuming they're not, you know, with God in heaven. Look, you know these people, right? You know people that are saints. Mother Teresa types. Was the person you're worried about a Mother Teresa type? Pray. Remember the people that light the little candle in church? Every one of those little candles is a prayer for someone. So we pray for them because they are undergoing a struggle to try to complete this path, to bring them into heaven. And you don't need to worry about time. How time works is, on this level, we have no idea. 
And I want you to be very cautious about this. I want you to think very carefully and not make a mistake about this. Do not get into what we might call a mechanistic or legalistic theory of purgatory. There have been some Catholics that have taught about things in such a way, well, they might say, if you go to this Mass, then you're going to get an indulgence for this thing, and that'll take three years off of your time in purgatory. Well, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. It's not a tit-for-tat, this versus that deal. You understand? The entire time, what have we been teaching you? We've been talking about metaphysics. What is metaphysics? The structure of what is real. You must understand these things metaphysically. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is this. God is interested in who you are as a person and what does it mean for you to know him? What kind of person do you have to be to be ready and fitted to know God face to face? That is the person that purgatory is bringing you into. It has nothing to do with a certain number of years like you're in prison. Did you serve your sentence? Yes. If I could add in, part of the reason that the church for a certain period had those time periods assigned to things yeah. is because in an earlier time period of the church, they had sort of practices and procedures for when people would come to the church confessing certain sins. And so the church would prescribe certain periods of penitence as a matter of how you would write yourself. So if you went to the church and you confessed a murder, they would say, okay, this is going to take, you need to devote yourself to 10 years of prayer and submission to the church in sorrow for what you've done. And so that is where the time periods that then got attached to purgatory grew out of. So it was never a mechanistic period. It was never a mechanistic understanding in terms of purgatory. It grew out of kind of a very real practice in terms of uh, what people needed to do to rate themselves with God, kind of currently. Okay. You have to avoid the pagan interpretation of the last of the of the uh, judgment. Okay, you got to avoid that. Here's what the Egyptians thought. So the Egyptians had it partly right and partly wrong, as the pagans always did. The Egyptians thought that at the end there was a great scale of justice and your heart would be extracted from your body and put on a scale. On the other side of the scale would be the goddess Mott. Unfortunately, the goddess Mott is a feather. <laughs> why, why does Mott matter? Because she's justice and truth. You see why she's light as a feather? And your soul, your heart, had better be pretty light and not laden down with sins which <clears throat> are never going to balance against justice and truth. You understand? Now, so far, that's our classic Western and Christian understanding of the divine scale, yeah? We will all be judged for our deeds, whether they are good or evil. The Egyptians are dead on so far. So, the Egyptians rightly realized they were going to be in trouble. And so they created this set of spells, which eventually grew from a few to 769 spells or so. And they painted them in the walls of the tomb so that the king, once he died, or whoever, if you were lucky enough to have enough money to get somebody to paint them all, could record them all. And then when you died, your soul, your ka, would move on to the next life and you'd reference the spells. You say, why were the spells important? Because they were challenges as you went through into the netherworld. And the idea was, by these spells, by these magic powers, you could control the divine and slip around the divine judgment. You understand? Yeah. 
Now, do you think a god who's omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent can be tricked by magic spells? Then do you think a god who is omniscient, omnibenevolent, and omnipotent can be tricked by us playing games with certain masses that we think are going to get us out of the realities of the situation? God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. That is the principle of the scriptures. So what happens when you go to a mass, which is said to be for plenary indulgence? Here's what happens. You are instructed to pray. And it is not the going to the mass that does anything for you. It's the heart of prayer that then adds to the life and the habits of your life that helps you become a better person. So never think that this is magic. Never think that this is a trick. Never think that you can mechanistically outwit God and somehow not have to transform yourself into a person of love. The only people who see God are the ones that love him. That's it. There's no escape. There's no game playing. That's what we mean when we say metaphysics. Who are we? We must be the sorts of persons that are fit as lovers for God. If not, we, you would not want to be in heaven. You would hate heaven. Because what is heaven? It's the very thing in this life you eschewed all your time. Right? You hated it. If you don't want love now, why would you want it then? So heaven is for the people that love God. And if we are not quite there, but we're on that path, this is what the church has given a name to to try to explain this process of finishing it up. Notice it's in the Bible. You know I'm going to ask the question. Oh, I hope you do. Bring it up. Bring it up. With my Protestant background, um, both evangelical and reformed. So how does this coincide with the truthful fact of once and for all atonement? The well, Christ's atonement is never in question. It's a question of its how it applies to you. Well, Christ's death on the cross paid the debt for all my sins. Yes. So my sins have been paid in full, according to what I understand the biblical purpose of this. What I don't quite understand is if that happened, then why is there a need, you know, when I die, the sins that I continue to struggle with have always have been forgiven. Sure. Once and for all. Let, what? Me, let me use a, an analogy which I found helpful, if that's all right. Okay. Um, say that your neighbors have a kid, okay, and he gets into trouble and he becomes a drug addict. He's making all kinds of bad decisions. Let's back it up. Let's say this is a little kid that grew up next to you. You loved him. You used to bring him over to your house. You fed him milk and cookies. You adore this child. Mm-hmm. It was like a second child to you. Okay, then he, he turns around and he starts doing all of these bad things. And he comes over, you know, as a teenager. He's, he's really in a bad place while you're out. He breaks into your house, steals all your jewelry, takes all your electronics to sell them for drugs. Okay, you go to the police. You have a claim, right? Now, his dad comes over and says, Betsy, I'm so sorry for what my child did to you. Let me write a check to make up for all of the property damage that my kid did, okay? His father has balanced the scales, okay? Are you reconciled to that kid that broke into your house, destroyed your relationship, and stole everything out from under you? No. No, no, no. Forgiveness. What did that take? It would take 
love and forgiveness, and it would take time to rebuild that relationship. And it would take that kid to change. Yes. Forgiveness does not imply reconciliation. Remember, forgiveness is a negative. It's the eliminate pushing away the sin, but doesn't mean you've made any change. Also think about this. Christ died for you before you were even born. So in that argument that you gave me at the outset, it follows there's no need for faith either. If Christ forgave everyone's sins, then they're forgiven. Game over. We're done. Right? Because he died before you've been born. So if it's once for all, then it was once for all then, and we don't even need the church. He died for everyone. Everyone's sins forgiven. That's it. Once for all those who believe. Oh, now you're adding conditions. Right. <laughs> okay. So it's the nature of atonement in the way that it's applied. Okay. And we have to understand forgiveness is the negation putting away the sin so the penalty that falls down upon us of death is not enacted. But we then must be made whole. And, and that's virtue. And there is no... Maybe I'm really delving into this and we should just... No, you should keep going. ...do this for another day, but um, the concept of reconciliation is also in the scriptures. And I, I really believe that Christ's death on the cross, his forgiveness of our sins, he was also reconciled to us. Or we were reconciled to him. Yes. Is that not in, in Romans, in Romans 8? Or in no, the, yes, but as what? As babies. Children. There's three stages of spiritual growth according to 1 John. Children, that's where we start. Abba, Father. And what do we notice? We're forgiven for our sins. That's what St. John emphasizes. That's step one. But that doesn't make you a man or, or a woman, a mother or a father. Step two, after children, is to grow up to be young men and young women who have overcome the evil one, have finally understood how to defeat sin in our lives and realize we don't have to be slaves to it anymore. So if then you start to put on virtue. Step three is to become spiritual fathers and mothers where you replicate the grace and the virtue that you have in yourself in other people. Now that's true love. What is that? How do we know that's true love? Because it's fruit. The fruit-bearing tree is the real tree. Because you're now replicating persons in a spiritual way in the same way we biologically replicate persons as parents. You're a spiritual parent. That is the fulfillment of God's love in us. So it's not enough. We have to grow into what God intended us to be. It's positive. You see, that's the point. The church is saying there's a positive end. To simply say, I've got to get out of hell free card. Come on, that's it. I'm good. That, no, 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 no. That doesn't make you good. Okay, so this is not just, you know, the big rap on Catholicism is it's a works-based faith, right? Mm -hmm. hear that from my family all of the course, time. Of course, sure. It's yeah. all based on works. Right. No, it's not. No. That's not what you just said. No, not at all. It's based on love. There is absolutely <laughs> volition yes. and action yes. for us to take. Yeah. But the only way we can be made whole and perfect is to be made whole and perfect whole by God's per love. Yes, and that means you have to be a cooperator yes. in time. Every single moment, you must cooperate with God's love. Right now, will I abide by that love or not? Next minute, will I abide by that love or not? That is what forms us. So the idea that you can make a decision when you were four and nothing else matters the rest of your life, that is completely insane. Faith, hope, and love, that's the point. And a faith that does not have works... It's useless. And St. Paul and James agree with that. Sometimes the church describes this process or this relationship in terms of being in friendship with God. 
when you willfully separate yourself and do bad things, you are taking yourself out of friendship with God. So it's not simply a, you know, God is the judge and Christ is the prosecutor and you come up and because you've, you know, signed your plea deal, Christ, the prosecutor, says we're dropping all charges. Sometimes that's the Protestant model, right? right? Mm -hmm. You get off scot-free and move on. It's about relationship. Yes. It's about relationship. You go to be with God. As spouse. As spouse and friend, Mm -hmm. if you are in a fundamental disagreement about values and practice, you can't have two people living together eternally if one of the parties is completely at odds with what the, the main party values and wants you to do. Okay. We're talking about genuine transformation of who you are. Protestantism, with its legalist account of justification, completely fails to grasp that. And being, quote-unquote, forgiven by Jesus for your sins does not change who you are. Not in real time. And unless, as the Beatitudes say, the pure in heart are the ones that seek God. So we have to become the sorts of persons fit as lovers for God in order to be lovers. We are children now. Then we will be spouse. So this life, church militant, is when we go from children to adults. I read something recently. I listened to a podcast and stuff at night when I to sleep. But um, something I really liked recently about purgatory. And, you know, sometimes you hear about the fire in purgatory. And they... Um, talked about the fire was like the yearning to be to be um, in you be good enough to get you know to be with God it's like like he said the you know the melting of the metals and such but you know sometimes I think that vision people you know because when I did RCIA years ago I'm like you know I didn't talk about fire and but what I understood is if you if you are in purgatory, you're not going to go to hell, but you have to be purified in order to be able to have that communion with God. You have to be ready to be that's with a, God. That's an interesting image because it goes to Jeff's idea of the church being fit for spouse. Because fire is something that we understand as erotic desire, right? Which is what ultimately we're supposed to be instilled with that same kind of the fire desire that you have to be with your spouse is the same kind of intense desire that you're supposed to feel to be with God. Yeah, that's a great image. And that is the point. Yeah. Right. And when you just sort of enter into the church and you just understand your sins are forgiven, that's a long way Mm -hmm. from being fully grown up now and understanding what does it mean to meet your mate and look forward to your wedding day, right? Well, I, I've struggled with the, the idea of purgatory as well. Cradle Catholic years in Protestantism, and then return to, to the Catholic Church. And one thing that, that, that I've, I've found, if you look at Martin Luther, he called the epistle of James an epistle of straw, because it did say that, that it does say that works... Um, Grace through faith, work. I can't quote it, but works are definitely a part of it. Yes. Okay. Now that now we see that a man is justified by works, not merely by faith. Thank Luther you. did not like that line. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and he inserted by 
by faith alone, the word alone in, you know, the epistle, because I don't know, was it Romans? Well, Romans is the Pauline epistle that he liked, and James is the, yeah. Mm. But I think he did insert Mm -hmm. the word alone, by faith alone. Alone didn't exist in the transcript. There was no sola fide then, right. But having said that, if you go back then to the Apocrypha, there was a, I think Apocrypha is not even a correct title for those books. They're, They're part of the Bible. Right. Um, he and others succeeded in having them removed right. because, in part, they, they, if you're into Sola Scriptura, Purgatory is, is in, in, <laughs> in the, the Apocrypha right. and Tobit yeah. as well. So it is in the Scriptures. So it's very useful to get rid of the books that advance that doctrine. There's a line, and I can't remember, I think it's in the Maccabees, where there was some section of the, the Jews that had done something they died I can't in battle, remember. I they died in battle, and they I can't remember what the circumstances were. They were in a Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Jews said they they had died, but the the practicing righteous Jews said basically we have to pray for them. Mm-hmm. So they're, the notion of praying for the dead as the idea that they're in some place where yeah. their fate is still be being decided, such that we can intercede, is it is it predates Christ. And, and to be honest with you, there's an awful lot, there's very little we know about the other side, right? Death is a very strong line. We don't know what our prayers do. We don't know. But that doesn't matter. God does, and he's good with it. <laughs> All right, one last thing about this issue, the communion of saints. Do you not understand this as permission to try to seek out conference with the dead? Okay? We do not in any way support or allow for, we flatly forbid seances, mediums, and these sorts of things. So if you have a, a loved one who has gone to the other side, do not attempt to contact them by any of these dark arts. You will not contact your loved one. You will be either manipulated by a natural trickster, or something spiritual of the dark side will happen It will not be good for you or anybody else. So the communion of saints does not mean that we expect our loved ones to talk to us. So don't misunderstand that issue. Finally, the church militant. Why do we call it the militant? Because we're in battle? Because we're at war. You say, oh yeah, Al-Qaeda. Well, it's not the military part of Al-Qaeda. That's our political selves, which we'll talk about. Because we are not just spiritual people. We are political people. We're familial people. We are employer people. We are people of full side, and our national identities are important, but we'll talk about that in another lecture. Our spiritual selves are in conflict with what Al-Qaeda represents, what is inspiring Al-Qaeda to its darkness, its hatred of women, its willingness to chop people's heads off on camera. That is dark, right? But it's not just Al-Qaeda. The same spirit is found all over the place. And our enemy, this is the thing to understand, a person who's a member of Al-Qaeda they're still a human being, and God loves them, even if they have no love for any person at all. That's what you've got to, we have to understand. There were Romans, Romans, soldiers, right, who were converted to the faith, and they had done heinous acts. St. Paul was marching around slaughtering Christians. I mean, the Christians were scared to death of him. And then all of a sudden, he comes back and says, oh, I'm a Christian now. They're like, yeah, Right? Right? And St. Peter had to have a little private interview to say, is this authentic? 
And then when St. Peter put the stamp on, they're like, okay, I guess it's possible. God can save anybody. He can transform their lives to love. So St. Paul says clearly, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle in our spiritual battle with one another. Even if somebody is heavily invested in the other side, trying to push evil onto the world, that person is redeemable because they're human. And we ought to love our enemies and realize that the real mover behind that is the demonic. We have zero interest in the demonic. We do not love the demons. They have absolutely irrevocably committed themselves to their ends. And so we are at war. How do we fight them? St. Ephesians 6 tells us the breastplate of justice, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Right? Look at these things. These are our weapons, but these are the weapons of virtue, idea, and spirituality. That's how we fight. So insofar as you consider yourself as a Catholic person, leaving aside political and these other dimensions, which are very real and have their own merits, as a Catholic, we fight not against human beings. We are at war with the demonic and their attempt to disrupt human beings' reconciliation to God. So, are we the church militant? Yes. And we are at war, and our goal is to expand the love of God to all people. It is not a war with the sword. It is a war with love. For 400 years, the church expanded against hostile Roman persecution without once raising a sword. And the edict that Constantine put forward did not enshrine Christianity as a state religion. All it did is make it permissible. And then the Roman Empire fell, and paganism again swept the entire empire because all the barbarians are pagans. And then what happened then? Over the next two to three hundred years, they all became Christians too. Seven to eight hundred years of expansion by, not the sword, by these weapons, the weapons of love, truth, and goodness. So when we say the church militant, that's what you have to understand what we're talking about. We are at war. It's serious business but it's against them for our neighbor's sake. Okay, everyone understand that? These three dimensions of the church, the lived reality? Okay, with our remaining time, I want to talk about the other side of the last things, which is the last things, right? How does it all end? I mean, that's a great question, yeah? So let's take a look and see what Jesus had to say about it by going to Acts. Go to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Acts, page 100 in the, in the uh, New Testament text. Acts begins with Jesus just seconds before he ascends into heaven. It's a wonderful text. Chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, this is extraordinary. He has been alive now for, what, 40 days and he's been going around meeting all the people and telling them, hello, I'm alive. Yeah, that's great. And the first thing they do, they are Jews. They understand the nature of Messiah. And Messiah will rebring the kingdom. Well, okay, well, that didn't happen. He died, but then he rose again. Whew. 
which was also predicted, right? These things were predicted in the Old Text. Jesus himself predicted this. So they're like, okay, the kingdom has got to be now. But look what happens. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and note this, to the end of the earth. Was Judaism solely for the Jews? Is God's love only for Jews? How in the world could the kingdom come when the Gentiles had never known the first thing about God's love? It's crazy. What does Jesus tell them? You guys have work to do. Get out there and tell people. What do you think I showed myself to you for? And then whoosh, he takes off. And they're like, what? And the angels say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up in heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And this is the basis for the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. The first coming was the incarnation. The second coming is this fulfillment. Where is he going to come back? Where he left, the Mount of Olives. How is he going to come back? In the air, landing on the Mount of Olives. When is he going to come back? Nobody has any idea. Only the Father knows. There are all kinds of cult groups that somehow use some secret codes or analysis, and they somehow know when he's going to come back. Nonsense. Nobody knows. Okay, Only the Father knows. Jesus himself said that. And when he comes back, he's going to bring it about the end of all things. Let's take a look and see how this worked out in the early church. Back up a page to John chapter 21, line 15. This is the part where Jesus and Simon Peter are walking around the lake. And each time Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I love you. Remember after the denial three times? So Peter's kind of being restored here. Feed my sheep. Reminding Peter of the mission. Stop focusing on your own failure and start focusing on the mission. You need to love and teach what you've been taught. And so Peter finally gets it. And Jesus says around line 18, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you fastened your own belt. You walked where you wanted to. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands. Another will fasten your belt for you and carry you where you do not wish to go. This he said to show by what death he was to glorify God. So Jesus tells Peter, you're going to end up crucified. That's what it means to stretch out your hands, right? Peter's reaction to that, as usual. <laughs> Line 20. Peter turned and saw following them the disciple whom Jesus loved. Who is? John. John, who wrote this book, yeah? And who lay close to his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this guy? So after hearing his own prophecy, the first thing Peter says is, well, what about John? I mean, now that we're given fortunes, you know, read, my, read his palms. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he, that's John, remain until I come back, what is that to you? Follow me. As usual, Peter's got the wrong, yeah, exactly, mind your own business. Now, what happened? Because, of course, everyone talked about everything that happened, right? This saying spread abroad among the brethren that this disciple was not to die. So the way people interpreted this is Jesus will come back before John dies. Therefore, they thought, he's coming back in our lifetimes. Right? But Jesus did not say that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who's writing these things and bearing witness. In other words, 
Jesus never said it was only going to be one generation, right? Did the gospel get spread by the time the disciples were dead? No, right? I mean, good God, the Americans hadn't even felt. Most of Africa, northern Russia, Scandinavia. I mean, no. No. Now, let's see what Peter finally understood about the end of all things. Now let's go to 2 Peter. Now, 2 Peter goes after Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, then 2 Peter. We're around page 200 in the New Testament portion. 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, Peter's old. Okay, he's in Rome. Things are going bad. He knows he's going down. He's ready to stretch those arms. He's also very mature. <laughs> he's learned a lot of lessons. He's a great example for us. This is now, line one, the second letter I've written to you, beloved, and in both of them I've aroused your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. First of all, you must understand this, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own passions and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, it is 2,000 years later. And you can imagine someone saying, give us a break. If Jesus was going to come back, why hasn't he shown up? He's not here. Therefore, this is a pipe dream, wishful thinking. You Christians, a little nutty. St. Peter has the response to that argument. Let's read it. They deliberately ignore this fact that by the word of God, heavens existed long ago. An earth formed out of water and by means of water through which the world was then existed deluged with water and perished. That same word that created the heavens and the earth that now exist has been stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. God does not judge time the way we do. If we live our entire lifetimes and something does not happen, we're like, well, I guess it's not going to happen. That's human reasoning. The Lord is not slow about his promises, some cloud slowness, in other words, human beings, but is forbearing toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, it's not that God is bored or lazy or not interested in fulfilling his promises. If by his word he created the worlds, Surely by his word, he'll come when he says he's going to come. The issue is he cares about people. He's not interested in pulling the plug early. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. In other words, like Jesus said in Acts 1, you're not going to know when. And when it comes, it's going to be like, bam, just like that. The Lord will come suddenly. Yes. And then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will be dissolved with fire. The earth and the works that are upon it will be burned up. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of persons ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be kindled and dissolved, the elements will melt with fire? But according to his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, stay alert. No, I'm waiting for the airlines to call me. Right. So, I thought you both hit it at the same time. So, what's coming? What is the last times? Jesus is coming back. 
And when he does, he's got some plans. And they involve completely devastating and destroying this entire universe and rebuilding it all over again. Notice, not just the earth, the heavens, the stars, the planets, all the galaxies, making them anew, making them right, making them whole. See the plan? Total wholeness. And notice, it's a heavens and an earth. That is what the church teaches about Jesus' return. Now, since this letters has been written, for 1,800 years, everyone pretty much grasped this. Then, of course, the Protestants got a hold of this in the 1800s, and things changed. Let's take a look, because I'll bet you've all heard about the Left Behind series, the Left Behind movies, the Left Behind books. They are riveting reading, right? Well, they're not that great literature, but it's a great start. You're flying a plane, and all of a sudden, the captain of your plane is a Baptist. He's a good Baptist, so he goes. Rapture happens, bang, plane crashes. All over the world, people disappear. You're like, where's that in the Catholic Church? Good question. Let's start with where it is in the Bible. You're like, what? That's in the Bible? Let's find out. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, page 172. Let's see where they got this and understand what's actually happening. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, page 172, line 13. St. Paul is trying to console them about people who have been Christians and died. But we would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Notice St. Paul does not say we don't grieve. He just says ours is of a different kind. We're still human. Remember, when God makes the saint, he does not unmake the man. Sainthood is the completion of human nature. So when people die, we suffer the loss. But unlike people who have no hope about because they have no belief about the afterlife or anything, we know that God is going to fulfill people. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So when Jesus returns, everyone who has died in Christ is going to be brought back with him. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord. This is official. Okay? This is official. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, with the sound of the trumpet of God. This is a very loud event. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Those are the people who he's bringing with him. Those who have died already. And when he returns, he's bringing all those souls with him and then those bodies are going to be resurrected. Bam! And connect to the body. Body and soul. A new glorified body that's impervious to death, impervious to sorrow, impervious to loss. Understand? So if you lost a leg in the war, it's back. If you're very old and infirm, you're young. Yeah? You understand? Can you do that thing again with the older? I'm just kidding. Yeah. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then, note, we who are alive who are left shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So first the dead in Christ, and then the living in Christ, church militant, right, will be caught up to meet him there. So shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, if you were an early Christian and you heard this message, would you not be comforted? You're like, yes, it's going to happen. All right? Now, the Thessalonians so believed it was going to happen that some of them stopped working, 
and went and sat on a hill and waited for Jesus' return. So St. Paul then had to explain, no, 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 no. <laughs> Any kind of extremism, it all happened in the first century and it's never stopped. Now, 1800s, a new form of extremism happened. Some Protestants read this and they're like, okay, it looks like there's going to be an event where Jesus rushes back and grabs all of his elect and then turns around and goes back to heaven. So they advanced a partial coming, which is secret, not public, in which he takes only his people. They called this the rapture. Here's the key concept that helped they added to Thessalonians to get the interpretation to work, quote unquote. They interpreted Revelation as saying there was going to be a tribulation that was a severe judgment of God on the earth, and they figured, well, his own people can't be a part of that. So therefore, he must whisk them away first, judge the world, then come back again with the second, not technically now it's the third coming, right? Because he already came twice on this theory. And then later, he does a public coming. So, the evangelical doctrine of the rapture has two comings, a partial secret one and a public one, and this one then leads to the you know, judgment and everything Peter talks about. That's when he's really mad. Apparently. He's just a little mad now. Apparently. Only Americans, by the way, would think that the church is not under tribulation now. Right? Yeah. Now, the book of Revelation is mysterious. You say, well, Jeff, do you understand what it means? No. Nobody understands what it means. If you read it, you'll be like, well, this is weird. <laughs> Prophecy is always weird. It's designed to be weird so that the enemy, namely the demonic, won't be able to figure it out. This is war. After the things are all fulfilled, we'll look back on it and say, oh, yeah, right, of course. Okay? But the book of Revelation, even though it talks about weeks and years, just like the old book of Daniel did, these don't necessarily translate into temporal years and weeks. The early Christians thought the Antichrist was Nero. Was Nero Antichrist? Yes. The next group, 200 years later, during the horrific persecution of Diocletian, they thought, yeah, Diocletian is the Antichrist. Was he also Antichristos? Yes. As have been leader and demonic purveyor of horror one after another. The entire last 2,000 years have been century after century of blood. And whose blood has been spilt perpetually? Ours. Right? There's martyrs every century, and it's horrific. Would it be unreasonable to think that tribulation is the state that we are going through? Yes. So the way the church has tended to interpret the book of Revelation in very broad terms is that there is a struggle and what all the details of Revelation are, nobody really has a clue, and it doesn't make a bit of difference. This is the state of the struggle and tribulation. To try to push it all off to seven little years at the end, and there's this secret event that whisks away all the Christians. Look again what happens at 1 Thessalonians 4. Three things, all of which are public. The Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of command that is not... Silence. That's imperium. That's authority. That's a king, right? The sound of the trumpet. That's very loud. Very loud. And the archangels cry. There's nothing secret about this. 
There is nowhere, anywhere in the scriptures or anywhere in the first 1800 years of church tradition that ever suggests that Jesus is planning a partial return where he comes partway and then turns around and goes back. And then seven years finishes the project. You're like, well, why is there meeting him in the air? What is this all about then if it's not this evangelical rapture? Because of the way in which conquering and triumphant kings and Caesar return to Rome. Caesar's coming back. He lands at the port. Rome is not a port city, all right? There's a port. The ships come back. Maybe Caesar comes back, you know, by, I mean, there's a lot of cities he could come by. He landed at different points at different places, different times. He comes back. You're in Rome. You hear Caesar's landed. What are you going to do? Aren't you interested in getting Caesar's favor? Aren't you interested in giving honors to the emperor? Are you going to wait at your house? No, you and all of Rome does what? Races out to meet the emperor on the way back. This was commonplace at this time. You meet them on the road. You understand? This is the mark of triumphal greeting. So why do the dead in Christ rise and meet him in the air? It's the moment of joining the triumphal return. Everyone in the ancient world would have understood this. What's more, for us, metaphysically, in terms of our human nature, this is when you are translated, just like the dead in Christ are unified with their bodies and made immortal, fully in this world, in the life, same thing happens to us as we are taken up to Christ and transformed. Everyone understand this idea? There is no rapture where a third of the people in the world suddenly disappear off the planet and everyone else is, well, tough, you're screwed, good luck. Seven years, boy, it's coming, baby. Okay, it has been coming for the last 2,000 years. We have been dealing with the struggle. Isn't it labor, labor pains, pains of labor? Isn't that in the scriptures? That they will increase as the, the coming approaches. I'm sorry, can you repeat that? I could that? be wrong. Pains of labor. The, the, that when a woman groaning. is in labor, the... The, the, the entire... Yeah. Yeah, but that's been throughout. Here's the thing. We cannot use anything going on in our world now as a predictor to know when the Father is going to send the Son. Right. Don't bother. There will be wars and rumors. Of there will be all kinds. There never ends. So you say, well, years. what's the point? Here's the point. Jesus is going to come back. Could he come back in our lifetimes? Absolutely. It's more likely in your lifetime than anyone before us. You say, well, how do you know that? Because he didn't come any time before us. <laughs> <laughs> so what about the people of purgatory? They will be part of this. Because here's the thing. Remember. I, what I said about purgatory, its time frame doesn't link up with ours. So they're still there. Here's how it works, okay? I have no more board. Can I erase? Yes, I can. Okay, let's do it. Woo! All that juggling training, right? Okay, so that's not working well. The deacon was wrong about the marker. Okay, so here's what's happening in heaven. And those are souls. Not, they don't have their bodies, right? I, I'm not about this. If you want to think about it that way, that's fine. I don't know that we know for sure exactly how this works. There's some evidence that people in heaven do have bodies, but clearly, when they return, they're joined with their bodies. Could, because Mary has a body, Elijah has a body. You say, well, obviously, because they were taken up into heaven. How do we know this? Because Elijah came down and talked to Jesus. He had a body. Here's the problem. Moses also showed up that day. Moses was buried, but he had a body. 
So is it possible that the people in heaven already have bodies? Yes. Do we know they do? No, we don't. You say, well, what would be the point of being raised from the dead if you already had a body? Good question. Maybe to unite the partial body with a complete body? I don't know. Our natural proper state is not to be disembodied. If you see God, could he give you a body? Sure. Does he have to give you a body? No. So the answer to your question is I'm not sure. But in, we also have evidence about the member of the rich man in hell. Please let Lazarus come and give a drop from his finger. Well, how does Lazarus have a finger? And how is the rich man in torment of a physical nature if he doesn't have a body? You say, well, maybe it's all metaphorical. Could be. That's, again, we don't know. Here's the final piece of the argument. How are we supposed to put on human virtues in purgatory if we can't live out human acts which require physicality? That's Elisa's argument. I'm just going to pin it on her, which I think is very compelling. So is it possible, likely maybe, even that we have bodies? Maybe. Does the church have a view on this? I'm not really sure that it's official. So we really don't know. Time. So heaven. We have the saints in heaven. On one level, they are in sync with us. They have to be, right? Because they're responding to our prayers. They may also have other sorts of temporal functions that we don't know, and that's just fine. Purgatory. Let's suppose it takes a long time to deal with your problem, and you die the second before Christ comes back. That's the worry, right? Here's the thing. We always think of time as a continuous linear line, right? What if time can also go like this? In other words, what if one of these people goes 10,000 years and then, oh, I'm back. Couldn't God make it so that when Christ returns, everybody in purgatory is completed at the same moment? Sure. Not a problem. In fact, in heaven, this may be one of the ways we avoid problems like loneliness or missing somebody. What if somebody goes off and spends, like me, I'd probably take three to 400 years to learn how to, you know, do um, plant vineyards and grow wine. I've always wanted to know. Now, at least me would be like, you're going to spend how much time doing that? Am I going to see you during that time? Do you think if I'm gone 300 years, and she, is she going to miss me? No, because for her, ding, I go 300 years on that timeline, right? Don't miss her for a moment. <laughs> or vice versa. She doesn't miss me. Sorry. You're right. I said that wrong. <laughs> oh, the wife. But do you see the point? We think of time as one line. What if times in heaven go every possible direction? See, immortality doesn't mean we, there's no time. This idea that we're timeless is ridiculous. Absolutely, we have time. We're physical. We have to have time. But you could have multiple time frames running in different directions all at once. Why not? So there's never a sense of, oh, darn, I miss so-and-so. Then go see them. They're right there. Not a problem. So given that thinking, we can realize that that could apply to purgatory in the same exact way and thus resolve this worry. And that's what I really want you to think about when you think about the last point, which is heaven, which, remember, is only temporary. The idea is to come back to earth, a completely renewed earth with a renewed body. You're going to be fully human. And use your imaginations. What do you need to fulfill you? Because here's the thing. God is not going to do less than that for you. 
your deepest longings absolutely fulfilled. And if he doesn't fulfill them in the way your imagination works right now, he gave you your imagination for a reason. Okay? Whatever it is will be even better. And then it won't get worse. God is infinite. So the set of goods and the futures that he will create is never-ending. An eternal community of persons in a state of perfection. How is that achieved? Because of the last of the last things. Hell. We've started from start to finish in this course talking about human freedom. That God respects our freedom as lovers of him, wanting to be lovers of himself. But it follows that if we reject love again and again and again until the bitter end, is God going to overwrite our choices? Well, if he did, we would be rocks, not persons. He cannot overwrite our, our choices to make us persons. So it follows that if we reject him completely, he has to respect that decision. And if we exile ourselves from God's love, that is what it means to be in hell. And the divine judgment is simply to recognize and exact that reality. The book of Revelation ends with this really chilling words, that death and hell are cast into the lake of fire, which are prepared for the devil and his angels. In the end, the demonic and hell and death, there'll be no more death in our realm, are all joined together, all those who reject God and set themselves apart from God and cast into the lake of fire. What is the lake of fire? Again, we do not know. But it is a state for those who have chosen by themselves to reject the love of God. Good thing we're out of time. Any other questions? <laughs> Deacons, do you want to add something? Did you want to say something, hon? Okay, any other questions? All right, shall we say the Lord's Prayer together? Yeah. All right. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.